Well, hello, everyone. Um, if you're remotely interested in politics and the climate, it's been plenty on this week with Na the National Party announcing that the Climate Emergency Response Fund, which currently has forecasts for about $2.5 billion in it, and was going to be used to um, uh, put various subsidies in various places to reduce emissions, um, helping to convert coal boilers into electric boilers, giving subsidies for electric cars, um, a whole bunch of things, uh, that the national government, if it gets elected, would take that pot of money, the two and a half billion or so, and ring fence it, they say, to pay for a bunch of tax cuts, effectively um, grabbing it. <laughs> which uh, has surprised a few people, particularly because the language that National used was that they were calling it a climate dividend. Uh, Catherine, as our um, dedicated climate correspondent, uh, sometimes these things are complicated and it's worth digging into what's actually gone on here and uh, what a climate dividend actually is and how it's done elsewhere. Tell us about uh, how you've, you've gone about trying to understand this and who you spoke to to find out a bit more. Yeah, so I went out and spoke to Christina Hood, who is a, an expert <clears throat> um, in, in, in the nitty-gritty of these kind of um, policies and the way that they operate, the way that the emissions um, system operates. She gives advice to... Um, New Zealand government and other governments. She's worked for the International Energy Agency in the past, so she's got a, a lot of um, a, a lot of knowledge about how these things operate. So we went and asked her about uh, quite a few questions about what was going on here. And the f first question that I asked her was, "What is this fund, the Climate Emergency Response Fund? Where does it come from, um, and what what is it intended for?" So there's there's kind of three things that, that governments typically balance when they are thinking about what to do with money that comes from an ETS or equally money that comes from a carbon tax. So one is that there are other climate things that need to be funded, so other policies that uh, sit alongside the ETS and complement it um, that need funding. Uh, so that's one thing that they might need feel like they need money for. Another one is addressing uh, the distributional impacts, as they're called, so the negative social impacts, particularly on the poorest households who spend a higher share of their income on energy, so on petrol and um, electricity and so on, so are more adversely affected by carbon pricing. So that's an addressing an actual impact. And then the third thing is, is kind of a more of a political economy answer which is um, how do you you know give politicians enough comfort to be able to implement an emissions price you know what how can you spend money in ways that make emissions pricing a sellable political policy um, quite separate from addressing the actual impacts that people are facing so those are kind of the three drivers um, the, the and then different governments have chosen different ways of addressing those so obviously so in most carbon pricing systems a lot of the money is ring fenced to spend on climate programs in one way or another um, because it's just seen as that, that they're difficult to fund out of the general budget process because it's just such a um, it's such a long term um, overwhelming priority that needs ongoing investment and ongoing effort and that can get derailed by short-term crises 
and uh, so there's, there's often ring fencing of ETS revenue to help um, keep that spending going. Uh, there are some carbon pricing systems that uh, do what's Okay, called... so... No, sorry, yeah. Oh, sorry, I was just looking for an example of... Um, so at the moment that... Um, that budget is ring fenced and it's been used for particular things like what they call the guinea fund. Do you have any examples of ways that the current government has funded projects um, from the Climate Emergency Response Fund? Yeah, I think, I, I mean, I'm not across all of the details of how the, the surf spending, I haven't looked into it in detail to be honest, but there's a combination of, um, you know, capacity stuff where to implement various policies, for example, transport policies, um, you know, you need the people to go and do the policy development and so on. Some of that's been funded out of the surf. I think last time around they put some of the money for um, paying for more bus drivers, for example, out of the surf. Um, was um, I found that a surprising one, but it makes all the sense in the world because that was the main barrier to getting buses back on the road was not having enough drivers. Um, and then there are these, you know, specific programs around um, uh, getting industry to transition and invest in switching fossil fuel to clean heat. Um, but it's also the case that the surf is um, has a mandate to fund adaptation issues. And I think, as far as I understand it, they haven't done a lot of that so far. Partly because the national adaptation plan was a year behind the ERP, the Emissions um, Emission Reduction Plan. So they're just sort of moving now towards the funding of adaptation initiatives. So it is a concern of mine that if money is... If, if the surf is shut down and that money is moved back into the General Crown coffers, that some of those adaptation um, projects might not be funded. Okay, and what what were the other um, options for for how you deal with that um, with that money in terms of you know whether you put it into consolidated funding or um, yeah. whether you um, whether you yeah so it's, sorry whether, it's, whether you have carbon payouts yeah um, so it's generally seen as I mean it, introducing carbon pricing is hard politically because people don't like energy costs going up and that's partly um, a political problem of convincing people that this whole package of things is a good um, good policy response and it's partly a real problem in that energy prices have real impacts on people's um, household budgets you know that's it's an absolute reality and so um, governments pretty much everywhere have had to to deal with both of those things um, as w and then balancing that with how do you fund the climate things that need to be funded. Um, so uh, obviously the, the default is that the money just goes into the general crown funds. Um, that was the case until the surf was set up, although that was only like one year because it, uh, auctioning had only just been introduced. Um, the, and it looks like that's what the National Party policy is essentially, just to put the ETS money back into the General Crown coffers and then that can fund tax cuts or spending or debt reduction, whatever their, um, whatever their choice is there. 
But another way that it's done um, quite successfully in some places is with a carbon dividend. So this is um, the way that the climate community uses this phrase carbon dividend is, is different than what the National Party's proposed. So a carbon dividend in, is when all of the money raised in the carbon pricing system is given back to the population on a per capita basis. So everybody gets the same amount. And that means that, it means two things. So one is that poorer households use less energy just because they can't afford to use as much energy. So they actually tend to get back more money than they've paid in terms of ETS costs. And that's seen as fair because um, rich households can afford to pay more and they're also the biggest emitters. So it kind of you know works out in a pretty fair way to give it back on a per capita basis. Uh, is there a, do you have a, an example of a country that is yeah. doing the carbon dividend well? Yeah, so the, the most obvious example is um, in British Columbia. So they have a, a system there where I think it's 80 or 90% of the money raised just goes straight back to people um, on a per capita basis. And, um, you know, so it deals with the, uh, you know, the costs that people face overall from carbon price but it doesn't take away the incentive to act because you get the money you know either way so if you if you take steps in your own life to reduce emissions then you you still get to keep the money so you're saving saving either way um, great so it how, how does that work to help um, to help get populations on board with your carbon emissions trading initiatives and with reducing emissions? Yes. I had a really interesting debate with someone um, a couple of weeks ago around political economy because on the one hand um, it, it genuinely helps the poorest households because it does compensate them for the increased costs of fuels, particularly, particularly petrol and diesel transport fuels. Um, so there's a sense of um, you know fairness around it, which uh, does help. Um, but there's also a more um, perhaps a cynical read on what political economy means, which is what do politicians feel like they need to do to get a policy over the line? And it's a, a slightly different thing, which is in a carbon dividend type approach, the politicians can say, we are giving back everything that we raised. We are not keeping the money, and that's uh, um, that's might be enough for them to be able to sell a policy, you know, irrespective of the actual dealing with people's problems. So it helps in both those ways. It, it actually addresses people's problems, and it should help with um, public acceptability. But it also makes it easier for politicians. However. Um, that's some of that is in economic theory you know in theory people should feel that way when you actually go and look at the social science research um, in systems that have been put in in British Columbia and Switzerland um, the public is actually not doesn't you know it might just be that they don't get enough information but they don't join the dots between the extra price they're paying for energy and the money they're getting back um, so there isn't they don't clearly have that sense of, of um, being better off or or they don't believe politicians who tell them that they're better off because they don't feel better off necessarily when 
energy prices rise. Um, and when you do polling and ask people what government should spend money for that are raised by carbon price, um, they, the polls generally say that people want the money to be spent on emissions reductions uh, activities because it's a way of winning twice. You win once by putting up the price of fossil fuels and you win again by spending that money on emission reductions. And so, and we saw that with things like, um, you know, the New Zealand steel support that the government did, um, which, you know, I don't think, you know, if we had a, a better functioning ETS might not have been needed, but given the ETS we have right now, it probably was needed. Um, but uh, when you looked at the public response to that, there were a lot of people who said, oh, well, you know, that's the money from the ETS. It was raised by, from polluters and that's what we should spend it on. So that kind of narrative of money being spent on climate reducing projects um, has a lot of legs. I, I spoke to somebody a while ago who said that one of the one of the big issues that we always had with the original ETS before auctioning was brought in was that there was no revenue recycling mechanism and so there was no way to deal with, for instance, cost of living crises or, or you know, there was no mechanism available for politicians to be able to deal with the extra costs that are being loaded onto, onto people. Um, and that that was a problem for the ETS for a lot of years. Would you, can you comment on that? Would you agree yeah, with that? Yeah, so the, the response from um, the Treasury would always give to that critique was that actually there is, because to the extent that um, benefits and superannuation and so on are CPI indexed, then, you know, the cost of energy is, is one of the key contributors to to CPI and it all flows through just with a bit of a delay you know so if your household costs have gone up because of this then there actually is a mechanism for that to to come back that was always the you know that's the, the technical answer um, so it's it's almost a question of yes but um, you know and one yes but is that there's a delay in that compensation coming back um, because it's you know, some time down the track before it flows through in that way. Um, clearly that doesn't apply to all people um, and all households uh, getting that money back. Um, and it's not, um, it's not visible to people, so it doesn't solve the political problem even if it does solve the actual problem. And then that, again, comes into this question of, um, you know, uh, are we solving a a question of actual impacts on people are always solving a question on the the sellability and the acceptability of policy. Hmm. So if um, so once the money that's coming in for the auctioning of emission certificates if that goes into the, the consolidated budget and gets used in other places is that I mean, this is more of a political economy question, I guess. Is that something that can be ring-fixed again later uh, um, to be used on on um, emissions reduction programs? Yeah, or just, does that a, tend to just sort of get lost in the general wash? It's harder because, um, I mean, they, they chose to ring-fence it. The current government chose to ring-fence it during, essentially, the start-up phase of auctioning. So it was money that they 
hadn't previously had and could say, okay, well, this new money that's a bit of a windfall, we'll set that aside. It's much harder to do that later if you've already put that money into your general pot because then you're having to take it out. And so it becomes a decision that, that's, um, you know, it's a loss rather than a foregone gain. And even though economically those are the same thing, we, we tend to feel differently about them. So, so it could, um, yeah, so it could, it in could, the future uh, there was, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it, it, it could be. Okay, so in the future that, that budget was um, supposed to go more towards climate adaptation um, responses, um, what, are, what are we li- likely to see in the future in terms of need needs and that uh, um, coming out of adaptation uh, um, responses and, and where would the government go to, to fund that in the future? Is that likely to be a problem? Um, I, uh, the needs are clearly going to be enormous. We've seen that, uh, a taste of that from Cyclone Gabrielle. Uh, local government is not going to have the ability to raise the funds to deal with local infrastructure impacts, let alone the costs of you know, managed retreat and relocation and so on. And the government has just started a consultation, um, select committee inquiry, to look at potential models for, for funding climate impacts, but the, it's going to be really big numbers. And that is something that... Um, there is there is not currently any source of money for and that's going to be a big challenge for us. Is there anything else I've missed that you would like to comment on with regard to you know how we treat um, how we treat income yeah. from the ETS yeah, so, scheme? So I guess I would say that in the so in the New Zealand ETS this question of using the ETS money to compensate consumers is a little bit more complex because consumers are actually paying quite a bit more than the government is collecting and that's for um, kind of three reasons. One is that emitters can buy forestry units instead of auctioned units from the government. Or, so the, um, you know, there's a total amount of emissions and some of those are covered by forestry units and the so the price of petrol or electricity still goes up, but the money is going to forestry companies, not to the government. And then the government doesn't have that money to spend or to give back to people. So there's a, um, a piece of the price impact that's out of the government's control. The government also gives away a bunch of units for free to trade-exposed companies. And so that's, again, some money that is not raised in auctioning. Uh, and then thirdly, um, as in many other countries, we have marginal pricing in our electricity system, which means that all electricity goes up in cost depending on the, you know, the most expensive generator, which is tr- typically um, a fossil fuel generator. So the amount of ex- the amount that consumers pay extra on electricity is less than the equivalent amount that the government collects in terms of um, ETS revenue. And so just overall, for those three reasons, the government's going to have less money to give back than consumers are paying. So um, we need to not oversell the idea of even a perfect, you know, per capita carbon dividend isn't going to fully compensate people.
is it not normal in um, ETS systems overseas to include the forestry sector as a sink? No, um, New Zealand's the only major ETS that, that is run on a net emissions basis, including forestry. Other ETS, the main other ETS systems that you would look to, um, so the EU, UK, California, um, just look at gross emissions and the you know the the essentially the only source of units is through government auctions and government free allocation. So Catherine, that was a fascinating chat. I've also spoken to Christina in the past. She's a, a really thoughtful and obviously informed person on the ETS. And uh, there's some issues there because, um, as we've discovered, uh, you take that money away from the uh, Climate Emergency Response Fund. Yes, you take away money that was going to reduce emissions, but what else do you take money away from? Yeah, and the thing that really struck me about this whole um, conversation and this whole issue is that that up to date, a lot of the money in that fund has been used for um, emissions mitigation um, things, but in the future, it was likely that it was going to be put more towards um, adaptation. So this is the sort of things where you deal with the aftermath of big climate events like recent, um, you know, cyclone Gabriel. Um, it might have been put towards helping with the expenses of managed retreat, for instance. So it's all those sort of things that we are, as a nation, going to be dealing with in the future that are going to have very expensive consequences, um, not just expensive consequences, but, you know, you know, personally sometimes tragic consequences and that we're going to need to deal with. And this was um, a decent-sized fund that could have been put towards those things. So when you, when you put it into the general consolidated um, fund for the government, it then becomes quite difficult in the future to pay for those big expensive things that are happening you know like it, it has to come out of it has to come from somewhere basically so if you've already given it away in tax cuts how are you then going to pay for those things that's the that's the question that I'm left with yeah and it makes me wonder how um, a national government would actually achieve the targets that are, have been set for us and that we've agreed to as a country in fact agreed to uh, uh, repeatedly, including under previous national governments, how we'd achieve the targets that we have, particularly the ones for 2030. Because we know from Treasury's estimates of how much we're missing by at the moment, which the IMF reminded us about this week, uh, uh, that potentially we might have to essentially buy credits, emissions credits, on some sort of global market, which, by the way, doesn't exist yet, uh, or find some way to invest with other countries in emissions reductions in their places, uh, that that bill could be, according to Treasury, as high as $27 billion. So yeah, Nash something Chris, Christina Hood actually pointed out is that the, the IMF warning about us missing those targets, they actually calculated it wrong, and it's worse than what they think it is. Yeah, so this is the thing. National have used that money to give a tax cut now, but what they haven't done is work out what the um, potential long-term impact of that is. And we have a sense now from Treasury uh, um, and a warning from the IMF that if we don't hit our Paris Agreement targets, particularly the 2030 ones, 
that we're up for a big chunk of money. So there are a couple of questions I think we need to ask during the election campaign of the National Party, their climate spokesperson, and also the leader, Christopher Luxon, who, by the way, we, we recall as the CEO of Air New Zealand, was very much on board with emissions reduction and the Paris Agreement targets. Uh, and the questions are, um, would National actually still remain committed to the 2030 targets? And if uh, we didn't meet them, would they commit to spending taxpayers' money on international credits? Neither side of Parliament have been particularly specific about that. We know that Treasury haven't included that potential liability in our actual Crown accounts, as frankly I think they should. And um, that will be an interesting question to ask for National, something for us both to um, hammer away at in the next six weeks before the election. Um, because really both parties have... Uh, not just reduce their spending on emissions reductions, change the settings of the ETS in a way that drops the price, ignored the advice of the Climate Commission, but is now starting to fly in the face of advice from the real grown-ups, the IMF, and um, potentially puts us as a trading nation in breach of our trading agreements, particularly the one we just signed up with the uh, European Union. So it will be an interesting challenge for the National Party to justify to their farming constituency. Are they prepared to throw the farming exporters under the bus just to ensure that um, the double cab utes being bought in Ponsonby remain cheap? Um, Catherine, thank you very much for doing that interview with Christina. She's always very um, thoughtful and helpful, and I uh, appreciate that. And we, we welcome questions from our subscribers uh, on other things that we should chase up with. And from my point of view, um, the, the interesting thing, learning for me in this process, was to realise that a climate dividend isn't just a tax cut, that you could actually, um, as you talked about in the interview, you could actually slice up the amount uh, that is received from the emissions trading scheme, hand it out equally to everyone, and in the process help to um, reduce the inequality and the reduce some of the inequity that um, climate change is going to bring. Because if someone is using public transport all the time and... Uh, effectively gets a, uh, a payment, let's say it's $1,000 a year, uh, at the same time as a payment of $1,000 a year that goes to someone with three double cab utes, um, that $1,000 is worth a lot more to that poor, pe per poor person paying for uh, bus tickets and uh, train tickets, which, by the way, National announced this week they would be increasing the cost of for young people and people with disabilities. And... Um, that is that is the the thing that struck me is that uh, um, an opportunity has been lost to get uh, get closer to a fair transition if national wins the election. So, Catherine, thank you very much. Great, great to have you um, doing these interviews. Thanks, Bernard.